0: Hi, David. How are you? Good. How's it going? I'm good, thanks. What do you want to talk about
1: today? The Wire, Breaking Bad, Sopranos? (laughs) I love when I got this calendar invite, what you named it.
0: Yeah, I'm going to do my disclaimer first. It's impossible to talk about Deadwood without a bunch of swear words and swearing, so be warned. This is going to be one of the
1: podcasts with the explicit thing on it, so if you have kids around. And any podcast I'm on is going to have to be explicit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but this one probably more than the others, right? Because it's part of the show, and there's a bunch of kind of anachronistic swearing that you don't hear every day, right? But with that said, welcome to fucking Deadwood, David. (laughs)
1: <laughs> there you go that's what the ti- that's what the calendar invite had
0: yeah i, I couldn't resist but first before because i i you know i may have mentioned once or twice before that i kind of like this show so i have some stuff to say but first we've purposefully not talked about it since you've watched it because we're trying to save it for today but so i want to ask you like initial impressions What what are your thoughts on the show like
1: how do you like it just get us started okay so I think the reason we're talking is because I've been reading your newsletter for a long time, for like years. I feel like it's been years, and I don't watch that many TV shows because I have an obsessive personality. And when I get into a show, I it like takes up way too much of my time. And so the last time this happened to me is with Game of Thrones. I discovered the show before I even knew about the books, and so once I started watching the show, because I think I got involved, there was already like three or four seasons out. People kept saying how amazing it was. It's like, all right, I'm going to try this. And then I started watching the episodes. Then I started rewatching the episodes. Then I started reading all the books. Then I started buying, like, the encyclopedia of Game of Thrones. And so I had seen you have great recommendations for all kinds of forms of media, TV included. But you were especially passionate about Deadwood. And so I was like, all right, you know what? And you you whittled me down like water does rock, (laughs) you know, over time. And I was like, I'm going to give this a shot. Like, I haven't watched a, a series in a long time. Let me try. And from like the first episode, I messaged you after, it's like, oh, I'm already hooked. Um, and so then you're like, you had the idea. It's like, okay, well, do you want, if, if you watch all the, the, the shows and then there's a Deadwood movie, maybe do you, wanna, do you wanna do a podcast and we just talk about Deadwood? And so I think I have to preface the statements here. It's like, I'm at a great disadvantage in this podcast because you're like a Deadwood master. Uh, you've watched this, the, the, I've only watched, I've watched all three episodes and the movie but you've watched the series multiple times, right? I've seen it, I think,
0: four times. I've listened to podcasts about it. I've read David Milch's <laughs> book about it. I've read uh, Matt Zolocyte's new Deadwood Bible book about it. I'm even mentioned on some podcasts about Deadwood because I kept DMing the, the the host of the podcast. So yeah, but the advantage you have is you've just watched it like in the past few weeks. I haven't watched it recently, so. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm going to do my best. I'm going to be basically learning from you today. <laughs> So in general, how do you like it? Uh, What's the kind of the the temperature?
1: So I loved it. To answer your question, I thought the writing was some of the best, maybe if not the best writing that I've ever come across on a TV, uh, like a TV series. HBO in general are good for this. I find like, um, I think all of my favorite, maybe I think they have all my favorite shows. So Game of Thrones, my all time favorite show, Uh, The Wire, Sopranos, um, and then I would put Deadwood up with the Sopranos and wires as well. But what I loved about it the most, and it took me time to appreciate I didn't realize, I think till like the middle of the second season, is like, Oh, Al Swearinger may be my favorite character, like mm-hmm. my favorite fictional character in any TV series that I've ever seen. Probably the same for me.
0: And that's the thing, right? Is when you start to show, you have all these, this baggage about like, Westerns, or just about TV shows in general, and so it starts, and you're like, okay, Bullock's the sheriff, he's the good guy. Al is the villain, he's the bad guy, and like uh, the scene is set. But over time, you realize that that's the thing I love about Deadwood is out. It's very like humanistic, right? It's about the messiness of being human. Everybody is great. There's no heroes. There's no there's some really really bad guys, but even these people are mostly complex people, and they have their their own motivations. And I, I kept thinking about it, and what's different is most shows they make you love to hate the villains right so the villains are yeah. really bad and you're like oh i hope they get it right i can't wait until he gets what's coming to him or like that's kind of like the feeling they're going for in deadwood i feel like they flip that around and they make you kind of kind of hate that you love the villains because you're like yeah he's a murderer and a thief and a liar and a pimp and a... but i kind of still love him right or even, even terrible characters like Wolcott, who's kind of like a serial killer, basically. Oh my God. Once in a while, you're like, oh man, this guy's sense of humor is so great, or the way he turns a phrase, or when he gets all beaten up and you're like, I kind of feel for him, but he's still terrible, right? But the, the show still makes you feel because everybody's a real person. I, I should mention, People like listening to him who haven't seen it. Like we're gonna spoil the show, but it's kind of a, like a show that's impossible <laughs> to spoil because what's good about it is not the plot, right? It's how it happens and the way the people talk and the way they are and the, the community and all that stuff. So if you've never seen the show, like maybe you should watch it before listening. But if you're on the fence and listening to this may make you want to watch the show, it's still worth it because like it's unspoilable to me. It's so unique. Like even
1: what you're hearing is on screen. It's not going to be like that. Well, what was fascinating to me is. I didn't know it was based on real people and real events, that these yeah. people actually lived. And I figured it out when George Hurst pops up because I had read the biography of his son, William Randolph Hurst, and like, he's a big character in his son's life, obviously. And so that was like, oh, once I found that out, I was like, I'm not going to read what really happened with the real Seth Bullock or the real Al Swarijin. I did the, started reading all the Wikipedia pages after I finished the show and the movie, actually.
0: That's good, because they changed enough, but what I'm curious is, did you know
1: that Wild Bill was getting killed? no no so I also well, that was a surprise yeah that was a surprise because I did I refused I knew he was a real character I knew he lived and he actually existed and he's actually buried there just like they said and everything else but I refrained from reading their life stories till I finished the show because I didn't want to know what was going to happen I want to go back to what you just said though because I just experienced this for the first time and I'm not too sure I actually knew the, knew of the concept explicitly even though like the phenomenon is familiar with me I read George R. R. Martin's like 700 page book called Fire and Blood which is a history of the Targaryen dynasty that HBO's now turned into a show they, they turn like four chapters into this new show called house of the dragon and the author has spoken about the creation of the tv series is the fact that that all the characters involved are morally gray Hmm. and to your point you have the villains that you can empathize with and the heroes the difference between who is the good guy and who is the bad guy is extre- incredibly blurred, and in most cases, the people that you thought were the good guy wind up doing heinous things, and the people that did heinous things wind up doing very like generous things, or like they would protect the people they loved. And that's the whole point, because like his, his the point that he was making is like it's a more of a reflection of human beings in general. Now, most of us don't have the extreme traits that like an Al Swearengen does, right? Who is known to be really good with a knife. Let's just put it that way, <laughs> yeah. right? and what's fascinating to me is the way i so i relate everything back to the fact that like you know i read biographies for a living for founders podcast and i was having a discussion with two people that listened to the podcast and the discussion was ostensibly about entrepreneurship right and investing and they had both not watched deadwood before and i tried to explain was like what's fascinating to me about the practice and the art of entrepreneurship is that in many cases you don't have to be a genius to build a great company But you do usually have you normally have to understand human nature and how to get humans to cooperate, because like you fundamentally have an idea, you have a product or a service you want to bring into the world. And you can't do that alone. So you need to be able to recruit people and then manage them and build an effective organization. And I was like, listen, if you watch Deadwood, what you're going to be surprised at is the smartest player on the board, right is an uneducated orphan, a pimp who owns a brothel and sells, you know, sex, um and alcohol and commits murder yet the reason he's the smartest player in in a very complex story the reason in my opinion he's the smartest player on the board is because he fundamentally knows human nature and he knows he's able to predict how people are going to respond and what is motivating them by focusing on what their incentives is and that idea again not recommending people kill people not recommending people be pimps all that (laughs) other stuff but that fundamental idea you could take away is like how is how is he doing what he's doing? And I think that, if you take that one idea was idea like, study human nature and then focus on the incentives of the people you're dealing with, that is applicable to any kind of domain. Absolutely, and it's Al's superpower. He even says it in, I don't
0: remember which episode, but at one point he's talking about politicians outside trying to gain power over them, and he's saying like, they're too busy stealing to study human nature, right? Because they, yes. they've missed something important. And when you talk about entrepreneurship and building something, Deadwood to me is about building human civilization. It's a metaphor for human civilization. And where does it start? And it's very, very crude and rough and brutish. And over time, you kind of build up and you you create these lies basically that everybody agrees upon, right? That's the title of one of the episodes, A Lie Agreed Upon. And everybody agrees that this guy is the sheriff, this guy is the mayor. Oh, now we are doing this yeah. this way. And it's, it's all really a lie, right? It's, it's, there's nothing concrete that forces people, but once they kind of agree, it changes how everybody behaves. So in the first season, every problem that Al has is like, okay, let's let's get my knife, right? Or let's send Dan to kill the guy. But over time, there's less and less killing of that kind, right? There's still violence, but not in the same way, because now they're more civilized. Now they, they've kind of moved past that point. And what the show to me reminds me of is, you know, as a metaphor for companies, for countries, for whatever is, there's the real kind of origin story, which is often like bloody and terrible and like, it's kind of like bad stuff happening from all angles, right? It's hard to find someone who's all clean and pure in there. And then over time, these origin stories get sanitized and they get changed. And and now that people have moved on and are kind of like in a less rough circumstance, well, they, they kind of revisit the past and like, oh, well, what actually happened is, and then they rewrite history. And I feel like Deadwood is a way to remind us that, you know, when Al talks about how he and Dan came in the swamp and they were chopping down trees and building the town, like, they really had to build a town from absolutely nothing to start this civilization, this community, right? Someone has to be there first. Like there's no, there's no infrastructure, there's no police, there's no rules already pre-existing. Like you started from nothing, right? It's all made up. It's all someone that came up with it, and we we tend to forget this because we all live well. Most of us live in societies that are pretty stable, and, and like all that
1: stuff happened hundreds of years ago, right? That were built by other people in the past. I think yeah. a, that's a great observation you had. That a theme of Deadwood, as it as it progresses from the first to the third season, is how malleable the world is. You know, they were frontiersmen. There was no laws. Then over time, there's more people that are that start setting up in the camp. Then they're like, okay. And to your point, it's like, okay, well, what do uh, they look around? Like, what do other forms of human civilization have? Well, we need some kind of law. We need. We have the press here. We have a sheriff. We have a mayor we have these committees of people that get together and they make decisions uh, for the group you know what I mean like when they're meeting they're always like you know it's a special meeting when they pull out the peaches yeah yeah (laughs) and so like and all the meetings are happening in Al's you know saloon in the gem saloon we talked about hey if we ever did a a video version of this podcast (laughs) we'd have to get a green screen in the back and it'd be me you sitting in the gem saloon because so many main events and important decisions take place in Al's establishment that he was you know the founder of but there is a something that al says so there is a character named merrick merrick is the reporter the publisher of the the lone you know deadwood newspaper right and he gets you know he's a america i don't know how you describe him but to me he's like a character where he's like unbelievably nice and kind of almost too nice for the rough environment that he lives in he's probably right? the
0: most like naive and idealistic character on the show right he thinks all oh, things should be working this way and he kind of doesn't realize it's actually very different
1: yeah, and he happens to be neighbors. His newspaper is next to Al. And so there's a time where I forgot who, who was like beating up on Merrick. It's uh, Cy it? Tulliver's guys. Okay, so, so, so I couldn't remember if it was Hearst or Cy so, so Tolliver's guys. They beat him up. Like to your point, he's really naive, way too nice for this rough environment that he's in. And he's going to get run over by people that do not have the same sense of ethics as him. So he's feeling down on himself. And Al gives the greatest, one of the greatest speeches I've ever heard in any show ever. And so much so that I went and looked for the quote, and there's a pic, there's a ton of them online where you see a picture of Al, and then they overlay the quote, and I yep. save it, and now it's in my favorites folder on my phone, and I look at this all the time because this is how I feel. Like again, being a student of history, reading biographies for a living, you just you see the full sco- scope of humanity, right, played out over and over again, and a lot of it is we live in a very rough world, right and i think not being naive to that that there are people out there even if 95% whatever percentage you want to put out even if 95% of all humans are are nice and kind and in my lived experience it's been that's not been the case at all but I know some people have had that lived experience that's fantastic but let's say you know the vast majority of humanity are nice to each other or whatever the case is that five percent that's that one percent that ten percent whatever you want to put it, it's like borderline psychopathic or sociopathic and they can do an unbelievable amount of damage I just got done reading Stripe Press has this fantastic uh they're, they're reprinting all these like old, yeah. old and hard to super books. nice design too yeah they're beautiful look at this one so uh I just read Vannevar Bush's pieces of the action and he might be the they make the case that he is the most important American to ever live in terms of science, the impact of science and technology. He was a
0: mentor of Claude Shannon, one of my, my yeah, boy.
1: Yeah, unbelievable. Like there's so many people in that book at the end of that book that Stripe Press produced. There's like 27 pages. I think he goes to like 250 historical figures that he, his life interacted with. And he gives like little descriptions of who they were and what role they played. Right. But he makes the point, you know, this guy's a genius and he's writing the book. It's published in 1970. He's 80 years old. He's had a lived experience so far beyond most anybody has ever lived, right? He's one of the smartest people I've ever come across, one of the most formidable people I've ever come across, one of the people that has the most unique life experience. And this is a range of people that he was exposed to. And he says in the book, like, we live in a rough world. And this is, you know, some somewhat of an academic. He was a company founder, he was an engineer, he was a scientist. But I really feel like what his conclusion or one of the themes of the book is very similar to what Al tells Merrick. And Merrick's sitting down there, he's kind of, you know, downtrodden, feeling sorry for himself. He's like, I can't believe this guy smacked me around, got beat up. And Al smacks him in the face to get his attention, right? Mm-hmm. And he goes, pain or damage don't end the world. I'm gonna read the exact quote. And I think if you haven't watched Deadwood, it is I've never come across writing like this in another TV show. Like Oh my god. Yeah. You, I had to rewind sometimes. To I was like, what the hell does that mean? It's written like almost like a Shakespeare play to some degree, right? So he says, pain or damage don't end the world or despair or fucking beatens. the world ends when you're dead until then you got more punishment in store stand it like a man and give some back and that idea is where he says the world ends when you're dead until then you got more punishment in store that that's that's a much harsher version of what Charlie Munger says. He's like, listen, if you live long enough, bad things are going to happen to you. It's inevitable. Everybody experiences bad things. Obviously he's referencing in his case, like his nine-year-old son dying, I think of leukemia, yeah. you know, when he was a young man and his whole point is like, okay, so what's to what Al saying and to what Charlie to me is saying is it's just like, what's the point? Like you're gonna sit there and complain? It's like, no, that is part of life. You've got to make yourself stronger and you've got to learn how to endure through these bad things. And so Charlie Munger may say, may express that idea in a different language, but Al says, like, give some of it back and it's not going to end until you're dead.
0: And feeling sorry doesn't make the situation any better. It just makes it worse, right? So that part, skip it as fast as possible and move on to the part where you're you're actually doing something, right? You're trying to take control back or do something good or whatever it is.
1: And what's Merrick's response? He gets back up and he gets back to work. That's all you can
0: do. Exactly. The thing is, Merrick was about to give up, not so much because he, he got a beating, it's because his equipment has, has been damaged, right? And mm-hmm. so Al is like, how long will it take you to fix this stuff? And Merrick says, oh, the equipment is, is okay, but the psychic damage is what may yeah, make me quit, basically. And that's when I was like, yeah. that part, you can't let it stop you because it's it's always coming. There's always more, right? It's like, I, I wrote something recently about expectations where if you expect that life should be always fine and without problem, then every problem is going to seem like, you know, a, a terrible imposition on you. Like, how how dare the world do this to me, right? It's not supposed to happen. But if you expect that problems are always going to come, then you kind of, you know, be prepared for it, and you'll become the person that's good at solving problems and moving forward. That skill is gonna
1: always be in demand in the world, right? So it's all, all about what you expect. That's a matter of perspective, and you realize with time that you can actually learn to change the way you view things. Andrew Carnegie has this fantastic quote in his autobiographies, like, young men should know that a sunny disposition is worth more than a fortune, and you can move your, your, menta- your I forgot the word he use, but like your mentality from the shade to the sunshine. Like, uh, another way to think about the same idea is there's this guy named Henry Kaiser, was as famous in his day as say like an Elon Musk is in the the world you and I inhabit today and Henry Kaiser built like over 100 different companies he was one of the people that built the Hoover Dam he built the Liberty ships in World War II the guy's career is just unbelievable but one thing I learned from him that was absolutely fascinating and I'm glad I read his biography and this lesson wasn't lost to to history was that he had this great saying that problems are just opportunities and work clothes so same thing. There's examples in the book where he, you know, one of his, if he's building a ship or if he's building a construction company, whatever, something gets damaged. Yeah, there was like a flood at one point. I can't remember what they were building. They were building, you know, some kind of physical, he built mostly physical goods, although his insurance company is still around to the stairs, healthcare company, um, Kaiser Permanente or however you pronounce it. Permanente, but I think. He comes across his employee in the book and his employees is just like all down and out. And he's just like, look, like now it's all flooded and mud. It's all muddy here. And... Kaiser, who again is facing severe economic lo- loss is like bouncing on his feet and laughing. And He's like, yeah, it's rainy and muddy now, but look above, he goes, the sun's coming out, the sun's going to dry all this up. And then like, we're going to overcome this. We're going to move on. And I think just distilling that mentality, that perspective down to that maximum of like problems are just opportunities and work close. It's fine. It's an opportunity. It's not a problem.
0: Absolutely. Another thing about the show that I don't know if you've noticed. Cause there's a bunch of stuff like the first time i saw it it was mostly about like trying to follow the plot and who are all these people right and then the second time you can look at different layers and different layers and the show has so many layers every time i've rewatched it i've enjoyed it as much or more as the previous time right so that's a sign of a good yeah. show to me so one of the things i've noticed is that almost every scene is not about what the characters are saying the words are about a certain topic but there's always a, a, something else that's going on right so for example Al as um, a character called Jewel that's kind of like, you know, doing work around this saloon, and she has several oh. policy. And he's always, in words, he's always on their case, right? He's always insulting her and screaming at her. But what it's really about is he's protecting her. He doesn't need her around, right? But he knows that she'd probably have a much worse life out there than here so he keeps her close. when she's she's not able to do something he's gonna scream at her but he's gonna take the brush from her hand and do it himself and pretend that he's showing her how to do it but he's basically always helping her and protecting her right so the words may seem very to say one thing but the actions and the kind of subtext is something else right It's, it's the same when Bullock and Alma meet they're always talking about oh this claim or that but the real subtext is like I like you. Do you like me? Do you, like, they're they're, they're (laughs) negotiating something else without words. Every scene to me, when I think about it, it's like, it's about
1: something else.
0: And few shows have this many layers. And I don't know if you've kind of noticed that theme going on. But
1: yeah, to your point, his words, Al's words, like what he's saying, is completely hateful but his actions he's showing through his actions that he actually cares about Joel and that he's trying to like that's the thing about Al he's even like that with Trixie when he does something terrible where Trixie tries to shoot Hurst or she does shoot Hurst and she unsuccessfully like tries to attempt to murder him and fails right and then Hurst is this like crazy crazily powerful character like he's a real character, like he exists in real life, but he wasn't like this psychopathic killer. In, in the um, world of
0: Deadwood, I, I've seen this metaphor and I love it, is people like Al and Hearst are kind of the gods of the camp, right? It's like in a Greek yeah. play where there are the gods, they, they're standing on the balconies above the town, right? So they're mythological figures,
1: yeah. Yep, and everybody else is on the board is dancing to the tune that they're the ones playing. Yeah. But like, even in that case where she shoots Hearst, Hurst demands that she gets killed for that, right? Al knows that he can; he's not strong enough to fight directly. And another good thing about the way Al thinks is like, he's very strategic and he's always like flanking people. He's never gonna fight you directly. Like he's yeah. going to, I gotta go to how he ri- reminds me of Henry Singleton in a minute, so don't let me forget that. But in this scenario where he's just like, he loves Trixie, right? Even though she was technically like, a, one of his prostitutes, right? And now she's with an, in another like relationship with yeah. Seth's partner. But he respects her. But he still loves and he feels the need to protect her. And she, when she's, she demonstrates that too, because when she's, every, every time she's in trouble, she doesn't run to Soul Star. Yeah, she she comes runs back to, to Al. Al, right? And so Al does, this is where it's so, like, it's heinous. Like he winds up killing. He's like, okay, well, I'm not going to give her Trixie's corpse, right? So he winds up killing a, a, Jen, a, a yeah. woman that lived, that, yeah, that works for him that looks like Trixie. Right? He murders a innocent woman to protect a woman he loves. That is, I don't even know, like it's so, it just throw, I don't know what to do with that, right? Like yeah. obviously How don't kill that, right? innocent people. But the the point is, is like, you're thinking, I think the writers obviously wanted you to think about the complexity of his relationship with Trixie, not that, oh, he's a murderer. Like obviously, you know, humans scorn murderers. Like we don't like them. And so I just think that's, that's extremely, to your point, This is not black and white. This is not straightforward. There's going to be me and you watching it, having different interpretations. And probably as you rewatch it, the interpretations change because they get deeper. The reason I I wanted to tie this together real quick, where something else that's very interesting about Al with other people is how much time the show dedicates to him by himself, thinking through strategies. And yeah. sometimes he's not by himself because he has this weird thing where he has, gives <laughs> monologues when he's getting a blowjob, right? Yeah, Or he talks to the severed head of a dead Indian chief. Uh, that, yeah, that, yeah, but yeah, and like, but you hear his strategy. So his strategy comes where he's talking to the severed head of a Native American. And also when he's essentially getting sexual acts performed on him, which again goes to the show. It's just. But my point being is like, I had a weird reaction to that in the sense it's like, oh. One thing I learned about when I read about Henry Singleton, not only the book The Outsiders, but also in Distant Force, is how much time he just spent alone in his office trying to think things through with what he wanted to do with his company. And in both books, they compare and contrast the way he spent his time as CEO, how most CEOs spend their time. And I think when you, you see the difference, like the, uh, we, we were talking before we started recording, the importance of having time alone with your own thoughts right we yeah. were talking about going on walks or exercising whatever the case was but, but then al applies that to his business and his business is survival if you really think about it he's like you know in my case like i'm not only worried about losing the gem saloon but i can you know i'm i'm going to war with murder other killers like he got there was a bunch of assassination attempts like that happened in yeah. his saloon and i think there's a message there where it's just like okay you see this person conducting his life he is supposed to be this uneducated orphan and yet he's spends more time thinking through the decisions he's making in life than I think any other character that we see other than maybe Hearst, who you see him a couple times laying on his back by himself in the room, you know, just alone with his thoughts.
0: Yeah, thinking through in and- doing a lot to acquire the information in the first place. He's always trying to embed his people elsewhere, right? Trixio, oh, watch out what, what Saul and, and Bullock are doing. Uh, you go with Alma, you know, with the Widow, and try to get her on dope and talk about the claim. Uh, he's sending E.B. to spy for him in every kind of place, like with Glaznov <laughs> and all. Like, he's always, he has this network that's feeding him the information and then the processing of it. And all the, the monologues, the way I see it is like, all the characters on the show are very like, old school by definition, like 1800s, is that they can't express their emotions at all. The only yeah. way Al can talk about his childhood or anything is that when, when he's someone who can't talk back, someone who's like so below him, like in status and, and just can't, can't, like every character can never express their emotions. Like Al has a bunch of feelings for Trixie, but he's never going to say it, right? Another big theme in the show is that intelligence is currency in this town, and Al is probably the smartest person. And at first he's surrounded by you know, nobody's on his level. The smartest person in the gem saloon at first is probably Trixie. And you can see why they're so close, right? He has someone he can actually talk to. And then as much as-, as That's a good point. Al loves really Dan. Dan is like, they have this this bond, right? But when then, when Silas shows up, like Adams, yeah. Al immediately sees that this, this guy is smart, right? I, I could do stuff with this guy that I can't do with Dan and my other henchmen, right? Johnny's never gonna yep. be the smartest guy. So smart people in the, this town are so few and far between. They recognize each other. Same thing like with- with uh, Miss Is Ring- Ringhausen. I, I can't remember her name either. Sarah yeah. Paulson plays a wonderful role where she's kind of like a Pinkerton undercover. Like she, she works for like a kind of detective, like a private military agency. And so she yep. pretends to be like a little school teacher kind of type, but she's actually kind of a stone cold killer, right? And as soon as she talks with Al, Al realizes how smart she is and they're on the same level immediately and they respect each other, right? Every time there's mm-hmm. some, someone smart comes around, the other smart people kind of like try to see, like, can I bring them to my side? Can I like it's such a rare
1: currency in this world and it's interesting. I, I see few shows that do it like that. And I love the juxtaposition between the people that are playing the game of life and people who are just existing. Most of the characters in the show are just existing. They're like, they're blinder. Like their focus is exactly what's in front of their face. Like, what is good for me? Like, EB Farnum, <laughs> they do a great job. Like, his words and the greasy sleaziness match up with what he looks like. For the first, like, he eventually gets a new jacket, like, halfway into this series. But I kept telling my wife, I'm like, what? This guy owns a hotel. He makes a little bit of money. Like, buy a different jacket. Like, but they made him look... Like the, his, fi- the, his physical character is a great indication of like the stuff, the sleaziness and the, the weaselness that comes out of his mouth. And to your point, Al sees him as like a useful idiot, right? Yeah. Like, and to some degree, I think EB thought of Al like a friend, but even the, the like the characters that are supposed to be like morally upright, even though like Seth, obviously, Bullock is supposed to play that role, but then you see him having an affair. You see him, you know, losing his temper. Yeah, anger management issues. Yeah, like... you, you see him asking at one point, like, what what kind of man am I becoming? Where I really feel like you just hit on, there's just a few of them are actually seeing the board as the whole, right? And obviously George Hurst is doing that. Obviously Al is doing that. Then you have these minor characters who me and you both cannot pronounce her name. <laughs> then you just mentioned her. And then to a lesser degree, like Adams was smart where he switched sides because yeah. he saw he's like, oh, my boss is gonna lose. And so like, I'm on the wrong team. And if I stay on this team, that team's gonna run me over. I should go see if I can provide services to Al. And to your point, Al realizes right away. So so you just hit a couple of my favorite characters. So obviously my favorite character is Al. And then there's just some, like, I don't know why I like Adams, I just do. I have no idea, like, I really like him. I like Doc. I like Doc Cochran. Oh yeah. Because Doc Cochran doesn't take any shit. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he's seen too much
0: in the civil war, I think, to give a shit anymore. And he also yeah. kind of like, I think he uses his position as the only doc in town. Like he's like, okay, Al, you're not going to kill me. Cause you're going to be in big trouble without the doc,
1: yeah, without a doc. Cause he's the one that has to take care of the sexually transmitted diseases yeah. of Al's employees. So, and he also has, um, he knows something that I noticed when I'm reading these books, where when you come across these extremely intelligent, formidable people, usually they're also aggressive, but the worst thing you could do is Not fight back. Like they will respect you more if you stand up to them than if you just let them roll over you. And Doc, he doesn't let Cy Tolliver. He quite remember. He's like, oh, that's it. I'm I'm giving up because what (laughs) they were doing with the uh, with the the Chinese prostitutes that they were importing in. Uh Uh, He's like, I'm not doing this. So he stood up to Cy Tolliver. Like he stands up to Al. He stands up to all of the bullies. And in some degree, you have to describe. I think a Cy, a uh, George Hurst, and an Al as a bully. Yeah. Right. They are definitely utilizing other humans to their ends and their ends only. And that kind of stops where they, besides Trixie and some other relationships, and Cy with Joni Stubbs, where there's there may be one or two people they actually care and love about, but the rest of them are just disposable.
0: I think the character that has the least redeemable qualities is probably Cy Tolliver, right? Because all the others yeah. are kind of bad guys, but you can find good sides to them. And Cy is just purely psychopath, right? Sociopath. I would say him and Wolcott. because like, Well, Wolcott is... Probably a, a sociopath, but he he, he has 100%. kind of lovable qualities, right? He has a good sense of humor. Like as a viewer, you kind of, kind of enjoy him on screen. Uh, Sai is more like you, you kind of love to hate him, right? He he, he doesn't have that many lovable qualities.
1: No, that's a, yeah, that's a good point. Where uh, you before you see that he there's hints that he was like a that he would kill prostitutes. Before that you see like a cultured educated person he's usually dressed better and yep. more groomed you know they're living in a frontier town it's like why is this guy look so good he's obviously incredibly smart if he could be george Hearst, who's one of the richest people in america at the time his second in command but then you see you know that he's got some kind of weird uncontrollable and then you start. he has weird you know and I, i've read a, a few books on serial killers and they have you know some kind of like sexual like not deviancy like he you know compulsion yeah, compulsion. And like, these just weird, uncontrollable relations with the opposite sex. And that comes out in his character. You mentioned another character that, that I like. I love Wu. I love Wu. Oh, yeah. He's, he's <laughs> kind of like
0: the the Al from the other side of town, right?
1: <laughs> and their reaction to with each other, like they can't speak the same language. It's just it's great. But you mentioned somebody like I didn't really care for I didn't even really pay attention to. But as the series goes on, like Dan, Oh yeah, Dan is this like big, gruff, mean killer, but as it goes on, you see his fierce loyalty to Al, you hear about the background, like he's willing to sacrifice his life for his friend, right? He goes out, fights what, Captain, Captain, Captain Turner? Turner. Yeah. And the longer the show goes on, the more I like Dan. <laughs> yeah. At first he
0: seems just a muscle, but he's kind of like a mix of like a, a big grizzly bear and like a Saint Bernard, right? It depends on the context. Yes.
1: Yeah, that's a a really good way to put it, actually.
0: About the intelligence as currency, another thing I love in the show is that some shows would be like only the top players would be the smartest. And in this show, intelligence is kind of like distributed randomly, right? So when Wolcott meets Joni. He immediately noticed that she's smart, right? And and they, yeah. they start talking about all kind of stuff, and they play kind of word games together. And like anyone could be on on Walcott's level, even though Joni is kind of like at the bottom of the social ladder in the city, and Walcott is at the very top. That's another cool aspect of the show. It's kind of like, kind of like real life, right? Anyone could come out of anywhere, right? It's not all like designed by like in some shows where you know who's, who's important because everybody else is a one D cardboard piece of character, right?
1: Yeah, and to your point, you learn about them through their interactions with other people. As to your point, like when you see Joni, you, you you're introduced to Joni. She's like, oh, Sai, you know, bought her essentially when she was like a little girl, like fourteen or sixteen or whatever it is. He seems to almost be like in love with her, kind of, you know, yeah. Sai in says, like, weird way. Some kind of weird, yeah. Where, he, but he's also like extremely ruthless and mean. But then the, she realizes, hey, she finds herself in a situation where she has no power and no control, right? Cause she's essentially sold into sexual slavery when she was a teenager, but then through the surviving in that environment now, she's probably in that environment for 10 or 15 years, whatever the time frame has been, she's developing a very unique set of skills. And then she can also use those. It's like a, a sense of resourcefulness, you know, mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, I can't beat the men on physical power, even though she carries a gun with her all the time, which is obviously very smart, but they're somewhat predictable in what they want. Usually men want power, money, and sex, you know? And so she uses that to as a way to maneuver herself. And in a sense, like where she disentangles herself from Sai and gets people to who funded her brothel?
0: It was Sai's partner, um, played by Ricky Jay, the, the kind of card guy that kind of left after stealing from Sai. Yeah.
1: That, okay, that's okay. There you go. Yeah, because it's like, where did she get the money? I know Sai said maybe he was going to do it, but I couldn't remember if came I think she was setting up, but then then he gave her some some more. And then he, he winds up stealing money from Sai and then disappearing, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, okay. he was supposed to die in the show originally but they they didn't end up filming the scene so they kind of just had the throwaway line but cy was supposed to kill him after finding out he, he stole from him but that didn't happen
1: yeah and so you think about that you go from like 14 15 year old sold into sex slavery maybe 10 years 15 years later finding a way to like open their own business and have a little level level of freedom now obviously that turned out yeah. extremely well, you know
0: tragic. negative
1: yeah but she finds a way to survive, and she demonstrates her intelligence through the, the, the through actually surviving in an environment where she's still physically weaker. She's at a disadvantage. She doesn't have the money. She doesn't have the physical strength, and she's not like she doesn't have a team of killers like most of these people yeah. do. All the powerful people on the board, and Sai included, have whether he's killing doing the killing himself, they have people willing to kill for them. That's their version of conflict resolution. It's like, okay, well, let's come to terms. Let's try to partner up on this. And if we can't do that, then let's, we're going to go to war and we're going to, we're going to settle our dispute to the death.
0: Yeah. And another interesting theme about this power is that it's not used the same by all of the characters. So people like Hearst, they want the power to kind of control the town, exploit the gold and the resources. Al wants power, but mostly so others don't have power over him. Right. It's kind of like a negative. The only reason he wants power, the only political maneuvers he he does in the town to kind of form this mock government, and between, it's just so others don't come in and have power over him. His goal seems to be to stay free and independent. And that's interesting too, right? Because it would be easy to have Al as the crime boss who's just thinking about money and controlling everybody else. And then it's a power struggle between Al and Cy and Hearst about who's controlling the town. But Al is kind of like doing this flip thing where he's like, "No, I just want others not to control me." That's another layer that I love.
1: That's a good point. And if you think about it, like why would he go from Chicago? I think that's where he was he escaped from, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Cuz he had like all those warrants out for his arrest cuz he kept killing people over there. <laughs> he's really good with his knife
0: i think he killed a a corrupt policeman actually yeah
1: yeah and so you think about it it's like oh well what kind of personality would go to the frontier right i'm fascinated by the history of the american west i've read a bunch of books on it because it's just you know it's complete there were no laws because there's no civilization and the stuff people did during those times are obviously the worst things that they could possibly do to each other but think about the personality type that you have to have for a character to go out of chicago which is way more and even though the um the Alma, what's her? Alma Garrett. It? Yeah, I think she came from Garrett, New York. Sure. But yeah, her, her, the Garretts, Brum. her husband obviously gets killed. He's in an environment <laughs> he can't survive in. Yeah, he's, he's way over his head. But what kind of person is going to leave Chicago? Or what kind of person is going to leave New York and then go to the frontier? You go from the height of American civilization at the time, right, to no civilization at all. And to your point, the kind of people that did that did not like other people having control or power or telling them what to do.
0: Well, you see what happens when they get like the barest minimum of government in the town. Like when Bullock and Charlie Utter become fire marshal and they just go into the number 10 saloon and they're like, oh, your stovepipe is like dangerous. People freak out. like, like, who do you think you are? The government and telling me what to do? And like, these people came there because they just can't, handle authority, right? They just went as far as possible to get away from any kind of authorities and laws and, and that's the first kind of wave of people came there. Then when it became like, oh there's tons of gold there, then there's a bunch of people were not kind of as idealistic or driven by that. They're just driven by purely by money. But it feels like the first wave of people like the people from the number ten saloon, Alan Dan, all these people are kind of like the don't mess with my life, right? And then the other yeah. wave of people like Hers and they don't care about that. They just want the gold. They just don't want, want the money.
1: So that's actually, you know, obviously Hearst is a very unlikable character. I don't think yep. there's many redeeming qualities at all mm, that they, yep. they present to the viewer. He's interesting to watch and to listen to, but as a person, like terrible, well, terrible. I think there's actually, actual, so I always view things through like, you know, entrepreneurship. And the fact that George Hearst, I think one of the main themes in studying the history of entrepreneurship is the importance of focus. And I think that's going to become even more important in the age that we live in because we live in the age of infinite distraction, right? So we literally have – we can fill our entire – like we can amuse ourselves to death every single day. And I think some of the best, like for – especially for founders and entrepreneurs and investors too, it's like the ability to actually like focus – put blinders on like a horse does, right? And only focus on like what you're actually like, what business that you're building, what is the service that you're providing for other humans? And these are the weird thoughts I have when I'm watching the show because George comes out, George Horse comes right around. He's like, I only care about the color, right? And so that's his, his word for, I want gold. I'm only focused on gold. Every other decision I'm making has to do with whether it's breaking a strike through killing people or whatever the case is like give me getting more gold now obviously that is meant i think for the viewer to be like this guy's greedy and you know he's already richer than he needs to be and he, he treats all the workers poorly obviously that's like the negative aspect of it but his idea where he's just like gold confers power power comes to any man who has the color right and so therefore in his mind because he's he wants the accumulation of power through money and control of other people in his mind is like i can't think about anything else than the color than gold and that is the one idea he had was like that's actually a real genius idea because he's refusing to allow himself to be distracted off his goal now we can obviously take issue with how his ruthlessness and his achievement of that goal but, but i think that In terms, like if you study people that get to the top of the profession or do anything difficult, it's not like a scattershot approach. They're not working on, you know, 10 different things at once. They are focused on whatever, whatever objective they have and the desire they have in life. They're running after that thing and not allowing themselves to be distracted. And I think that is actually one of the best lines in the entire show where he's like, I only care about the color.
0: For every polymath like Ben Graham or Henry Singleton, there's way more people who are maniacally focused on one thing like Buffett. Right? I'm only investing. I'm only thinking about business all day
1: long. Like a lot of, but even Singleton. But if you ever even Singleton, like yes, obviously genius. Like I don't think you and I can replicate him. You know, the guy could just like grandmaster chess. He could play it blindfolded, like all this crazy stuff. But his focus though was on building, making Teledyne as valuable as possible. Yeah. And so he only did, yeah, I think he started the company, he's like 43, ran it for 20 years, then, you know, goes off to his ranch or whatever. But during that 20 years, it wasn't like he was trying to be, his focus was like, I'm going to be the best I can at this point. one thing that I'm focused on. And then once he left, then he starts going on the ranch. And he had some good ideas when he went on the ranch where like, you know, guys, I think, well, I think the third largest land, private landowner in the world at the time, uh, in the United States rather, uh, unbelievably wealthy. And yet he talks about in, I think it's in Distant Forest, where he's just like, he fills out every single check that his ranch, like every single expense, he's the one handwriting the check and he calls it a kind of discipline. And he's mm-hmm. like, "Me, of course I could hire somebody else to do this, but his whole point is like, the money is the lifeblood of any kind of organization, whether it's a private company or it's his cattle ranch. And me knowing every single expense that this ranch has, it's a kind of discipline and a form of education to actually know what's going on. So I think that speaks to his ability to focus. Yeah, figure out
0: what matters and stay close to that thing, right? Don't. Create mm-hmm. distance over time because it's more convenient for you or whatever, but then you lose track of the thing that really matters. Yep. Another great team in the show that I. I now see in a new light now that I've read the Deadwood Bible, because to me, David Milch, the creator of the show, and this is one of those shows, Deadwood is one of those shows like Mad Men or Sopranos that is very centered around one person. Some shows have like a writer room and everybody contributes and it's kind of like a group effort and some shows it's like the voice of one person and there's still plenty of other people helping them, right? But it's more like the author thing. So almost every character in Deadwood is dealing with addiction and abuse. And now that I've learned about the life of David Milch, I understand why, right? Uh, Milch was abused and molested as a kid for years in a camp, for many years in a row at a camp that he went to. Uh, Later in life, he was a drug addict. He was a gambling addict. I think over his career, he made a lot of money with NYPD Blue. He had like uh, maybe a hundred million dollars and he lost pretty much all of it gambling and giving it away to people around him. He was super generous. He was giving money to all his employees and people around, but the guy had very, very big problems with addiction, and maybe the root of that was the abuse. And so in Deadwood, when, when you look at through this lens, and people who knew him say that, David Milch put himself some character, and Al is kind of like one of the avatars of David Milch, right? He's not the same, but people kind of recognize some of him in there, right? Hearst has some characteristic of David Milch, too. Milch has a, had a bad back, so he was laying on the ground and dictating scenes, and other people were writing them. So, so when you see Hearst like, standing on a the, on the door or on a plank or something, that's kind of like a David Milch thing, right? But almost everybody else, many many of the women on the show, if you read between the lines, like sounds like they were abused uh, as children. There's tons of characters that are alcoholics or on drugs, like Calamity Jane, like she's basically trying to kill herself with alcohol after Bill dies. And even the doctor, Doc Cochrane, like when he's on the job, he doesn't drink. And as soon as he punches out, like you're going to find him drunk in his tiny hut at the end of the street. All these characters, this theme is, is like, it's just basically David Mills trying to exercise his demons, I feel like. And, and, and once you see it like that, it, it, to me, it feels even more like poignant and emotional.
1: How many shots of liquor? are on screen throughout the series. It's like every time they make a statement, like we're, we're going to take a shot. It's unbelievable. And to your point, I don't know if he, that was intentional or not, but uh, you're not going to watch the show and be like, hey, you know what I'm missing out on my life? Like a heavy alcohol habit because they make terrible decisions when they're drunk. They destroy their health. Usually it leads to some sort of, sort of violence. And I, like Calamity Jane is the perfect example. She's also one of my favorite characters, like her attitude. She's amazing.
0: I've never seen a character like that on any other show. Robin Weigert, the actress, like I don't yeah. know
1: how she does it. The dialogue that she has is amazing. Her attitude is fantastic, but then you empathize and you start to like, like the character and then you also, but then you realize like she's like essentially homeless. She sleeps outside most of the time. Yeah. Uh, she's usually woken up in a violent manner, like somebody's shaking her because she's so drunk and she's drinking an entire bottle of alcohol to the head every night.
0: Or she wakes up, one time she she, she says, I woke up, like bruises all over me, my horse gone, and I don't know what yes. happens. Right, what kind yeah. of life
1: is that to lead, right? Blacking out, to your point though, that's what I love. Like one of my, I discovered this guy named David Ogilvie when I was reading Warren Buffett shareholder letters because Warren Buffett was investing into Ogilvie and Mather, which is the advertising agency that David founded. And Warren's like, yeah, David Ogilvie's a genius. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I should read about him. So I start reading, David wrote a bunch of books and I start reading all his books. I'm like, oh, I love this guy. Now I've read like five or six of them and I've done a bunch of podcasts on him. But he says something that's really interesting. He says, down with committees, search all the parks in your city. You'll never find a statue that's dedicated to a committee. And I think the best products, the best companies, the best experiences are usually come from like the mind and the the energy of one person and then they've refused to compromise. They have to recruit other people to bring their vision to life like David did, right? Yeah. But what you picked up on is I was listening to Ian McShane, McShane, McShane? McShane, I think. McShane, and you know, that guy's an extremely accomplished actor, Yeah, you know, absolutely made, lived a really interesting life. And he said that David, the showrunner, was in complete control of the narrative. And he also said that he was the best showrunner that Ian had ever worked for. And he would say, it's like, It's not just the words on the page, but he would watch what, like, the words that he wrote, and then he'd see the scenes, and then he'd watch, and then he would would have the combination of two, and he'd go back, he's like, I noticed something else, and he would change it on the fly. And he talked about that David had complete control over the entire environment. So it speaks to your point, so it's like, this is not a committee. It is the obsessive mind of a gifted writer that wanted to bring Deadwood to life and refused to compromise on his vision. I have so much to say about this. One of the
0: things that made Deadwood so different is that they had this this set, basically this 360-degree set of the town built up on on Melody Ranch in in California somewhere. And basically any other show, you have a set for like this angle or this room, or, okay, you want another angle? Well, we got to change it. We got to pick up a crew and everything has to be planned in advance. But when the set is already built from all angles, You can improvise you can change things and after a while the actors figured out that david was always changing the script at the last minute so they all started hanging around the ranch even when they weren't shooting and so david would be like oh you're around you're around let's do a scene and then they would do something just based on what they had right the actors found it very very challenging because they have these very difficult words to say right and they got the pages like the morning of the day off, because david last night found a new a new way to make the scene even better so he was always changing it to the last minute so that probably was very difficult in the moment but the result it's super organic and then david would write something for eb right for the season one and then he'd watch the actor for a while, and he realized that the, the actor that played E.B. was super nervous. He was an anxious guy, right? He had sweaty palms in real life. So he wrote that in. Not only that, he said, oh, he's a nervous guy. He's anxious. He gave him the longest speech. And so he was even <laughs> more nervous. So it brought out the, the actor's real traits but inside of the character so the character seems so realistic because he was custom made for the actor there was this feedback loop right all the other actors came to David and were like the guy who does EB like he fucks up all the time right it takes him 25 takes to do this long speech right do we need him right is is he the right guy (laughs) and David was like he can take as long as he wants because when he gets it it's amazing and that's all you that's all he cared about right the final product the final results like if it works it works like however you have to do it Jim Beaver, the actor who plays Ellsworth, uh, one of the rare characters that everybody loves in the show. and uh, like I can't say yeah. anything bad about him. His wife died, I think during the filming of the show or not long before. And David wrote a scene for Ellsworth where he's talking to Alma and he's talking about, I used to have a wife and a daughter and they died and this and that. And all the other actors were like, they went to Beaver and they said, how could David do this to you, right? He's using your pain, right? He's, he's like exploiting you or something. Everybody were kind of shocked. And Jim Beaver said, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. David could understand what I was going through and gave me a way to make something good out of something terrible and to, wow. to use these emotions to make something beautiful and, and, and to kind of like process them through a character. Right. Cause I think David Mills probably had so much pain in his life he had a very difficult life. In fact, I think most of his family are like basically gangsters and his father is the only person in the family that wasn't in the family crime business because the others said, we we need someone legit in the family. So you're going to be the the legit guy. We're going to keep you out of it. But all his uncles and people around, like he had like, he probably saw all kinds of stuff through his life. Like So I feel like he probably could understand this kind of deep pain that maybe some other writers or showrunners wouldn't. So yeah, Deadwood was probably like, from HBO's perspective, it was a mess because they never had scripts in advance. They never knew what was going on. Everything was improvised. Everything was expensive because you have all these extras in this big set. But that's why it's unique. If they had the same process as every other show, it would probably look and feel like every other show a bit more, right?
1: So I didn't know any of that background that you just said. And what I thought of, it's like he was David was working on something that was alive. Yeah. It's not like, okay, this is what we have written down on the paper we're just going to stick with it that's something i learned about walt disney that i was surprised when i read his biography it was just like walt disney you take a mickey mouse you take of animation you think of snow white you take everything else and then you realize that the thing that he was most proud of he, when he, as he was dying he said there was two things he was most proud of that he was able to keep control start uh, his company but keep control of it because he lost control of his first company right and disneyland and the reason was he made the point that when he made like snow white or a mickey mouse movie or whatever he's like once it's done it's just done he's like i wanted to work on something that was the it's ongoing yeah i could constantly change and improve and change the direction of and redo and maybe take away down this part of the park or this ride and then put something else up in its uh in its place that sounded a lot like david's approach to the creation of a show he's like it's alive let's react let's optimize for flexibility and if, as I go on, like to your point, as, as the seasons go on and I understand not only more of who E.B. Farnum is as the character, but also the actor portraying the character, then that's going to influence the direction of the show and, more importantly, the experience of the viewer. Yeah, and the way the show is very
0: theatrical makes sense when you you know it's, it's kind of improvised, right? Because Deadwood is a Western, but... Like it's a Western where you never see like wide open nature and nature is not romanticized. And the town is like the stage and almost all Mm -hmm. of the story happens on this stage. And so the theatrical language and the kind of the way people act makes sense. If you look at the town as a stage, right? That's, That's the theater, that's where everything happens almost. It's very different from almost any Western I've seen. And even more so at first, it wasn't even supposed to be a Western. When David Milch went to HBO to pitch the show, it was set in ancient Rome. So the teams were about like building civilization a lot, all, all the same kind of teams. but it was ancient Rome. And the HBO guys said, oh, that sounds great, but we already have a show about Rome in production, right? I don't know if you've seen the show Rome, but that's what they were making at the time.
1: Yeah, I think I've seen a couple episodes, but I didn't stick with it.
0: That's another a good one. But so, yeah. so David Milch kind of like on the fly, were like, well, it could be set in Deadwood. And, and he, he kind of like went with this idea, but he just reset it in Deadwood. Like, that's the kind of brilliance that this guy had, where like the guy was like, he was a kind of college professor, like reading all of the ancient classics. That's why the show as is so rich in language and references and themes and all that. It's like, the guy was distilling like a thousand books right into this d- these rough guys like screaming
1: cocksuckers at each other right That, that that's yeah. so
0: unique right where are you gonna find
1: that well the same interview i was watching with ian McShane, he said he made the point after he made that he thought that david was the best showrunner that he ever worked for and they had complete control he said that deadwood was the only it was the only show that had ever combined a theater workshop with television hmm. to your point where it's like yeah we have a stage we have the wording but we're also he used the word improvisation. And he made the point, he's like, not that we could improvise, but that David would. Yeah, oh, for sure. Some
0: of what I've read in the Deadwood book basically says that some of the actors, uh, like Powers Boots, who plays site Tolliver, he's kind of old school and he was kind of like a star in his day. He had his way of working and he wasn't going to change for David Milch. So while the other actors were kind of sticking around just in case David needed him, he was back in L.A. or something. And so... Mm-hmm. He probably wasn't much fewer like of those improvised scenes than than some of the others, just because he didn't have the flexibility to adapt to Davis' point of view, which is totally up to him, right? Not everybody needs to want to change how they're doing everything, but it was so unique in that way that some actors just couldn't keep up with that kind of work. Sai was in one of my favorite movies ever. Did you ever watch the movie Tombstone? I have, but so many years ago, I like it's almost yeah, okay. as if I haven't watched it.
1: Oh, I've probably seen that, that movie like 10 times when I was growing up because uh, Val Kilmer, uh, his representation of Doc Holliday is one of my favorite all-time characters ever. But Psy was, um, I think it was Wild Bill in that. So when I saw him in Deadwood, I'm like, oh, it's Wild Bill. Oh, the, the actor who plays Wild Bill, uh, Keith Carradine,
0: I think he does an incredible job of being like one of those gods of the camp, right? His voice, his presence, the way he moves. like His beautiful hair. It's, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful mullet. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. All the characters like you see them for the first time in the first episodes and they have this way of conveying that I've had a life before this, right? That there's a richness outside of the show, sometimes just by one line, right? There's a line in the in the Deadwood movie. It's not a spoiler if you haven't seen it yet, but like there's a guy who's getting beaten down in the street and some bystander, random bystander says, I hope you die. I hope you die in the street like my father. And that's all he says. But that's a Milch line, right? There's a whole story in just one sentence that you can yeah. think of for a whole day. You could spin off a show for just that guy. So that's the thing with Milch
1: is every line, everything conveys like a past. I was surprised how much time because you figure like you have the main characters, but how much time they dedicated to people that didn't seem like the guy that kept harassing he ends up getting kicked by a horse. He's a terrible person. Oh, Steve, person. Steve the Drunk, right? Yeah, Steve the Drunk. He's on screen a ton. Like there was some, as it went on, I was like, why are they dedicating? I wanna go into, if you have any information about like why the show was so properly canceled. Cause I'm thinking like, I didn't know, HBO has has had this before where they just maybe do like four episodes or four, four seasons or something. So when I saw the demo, it was only three seasons. That's one reason I uh, agreed to give it a shot. Because I was like man, I do not have time like I am not gonna get lost in like a nine season 90 episode hole right now I don't have time in life like that, right? And so when I saw it was three three seasons I was like, all right cool But as we were progressing through the back half of season three, I'm like, how are they gonna wrap this up? And then I see the last episode I'm like oh they they don't wrap it up.
0: No, nope.
1: so what like they spent so much time I'm Like I'm thinking they knew they was gonna end in season three So I'm like why are they dedicating all so much time to these theater people? Like I was interested to see where that like plot line was going. So do you have any idea? Like what does it talk about in the books? Does David ever talk about? The story
0: just came out. The real story just came out in the Deadwood Bible. Matt O' found the way, like he interviewed the HBO people. He interviewed people around David and it's super tragic. It's, it's super frustrating. Basically nobody wanted it to end, but it ended because misunderstandings and egos and stuff like that right so there was supposed to be a fourth season David Milch wrote a book during season three it's called Tales from the Black Hills and in the book it implies that the show is going to continue for a fourth season and then there's a page at the end that says like oh uh, the show had been canceled like they it, it just added at the end I think the guy from HBO went to David Milch and he kind of wanted to st- get a kind of negotiation going like hey maybe for the next season you could have like six episodes or maybe eight episodes because it's an expensive show right with all the extras and everything and it had decent ratings but it wasn't like putting the world on fire right and i think david milch saw that as a kind of like i don't know maybe an insult i don't know how he took it but he took it very hard and he was like well how about zero right and and and, oh, wow. and so the guy from HBO, I think it's Chris Albrecht, but the guy from HBO was like, David, don't go crazy. Like, think about it. Let's talk about it on Monday. Like, take the weekend to think about it. Like, relax, man. So David was like, oh, shit, they're gonna cancel us. They're gonna like. Uh. So uh, Timothy Elephant who plays Bullock i yeah. just put a big down payment on a big house and everything and so david Milch is super protective as people so he was <laughs> like oh shit so david Milch called timothy elephant and he's like you maybe want to be careful with your house man because i think hbo may be about to pull the plug or something and david started talking to the cast and so once it gets out of the cast like the, the agent is calling hbo and people are talking oh, about man. it man and so the hbo guys come the next week and they're like I think the way Chris Albrecht put it is like the show kind of canceled itself, right? The, like rumors were leaking out and the, the crew, like there's all kinds of crew running with the show, like doing the construction and the lighting. People were talking about, the, we have a job next year. In the end, because David Misch was working on a pilot for another show he wanted to do for HBO. So I think at the time he was like overworked and working on two things at the same time. He was like, ah, like, see if they want to cancel us. Fine. Like, I'll, I'll work on my other thing. But looking back, I think what both sides were saying is like, well, if we could have just sat together and talked about it, maybe we could have gotten eight episodes, right? Maybe we could have gotten 10. Maybe th- there was a, there was something to get other than zero. But because people reacted kind of like under emotion, right? In the moment, they got nothing at all. And that's the most frustrating part of this. Like, I, I so wish I could see what the fourth season would be like.
1: It, well, not only that, like, think about it. So it ends in 2006? Yes. What, what, it goes on. Uh, so I think so. So that is, that's pre-streaming like it's has probably it has pro- undoubtedly been viewed more times after it was cancelled than it was being watched you know during right oh, yeah and Even so during it th- wasn't
0: that bad i thought it was cancelled because it was like not getting any traction kind of like firefly but for the first year they were playing it right after the sopranos on uh sunday night so it was getting like mm. i don't know like six seven eight ten million i don't remember the number but millions and millions of viewers but it's a difficult show I, um... so if streaming existed you didn't have to wait for the DVDs and people could start from the first episode, it would definitely have been more popular.
1: I think it's an example of something I noticed uh, when reading these biographies that I think entrepreneurs and investors know or maybe like can learn from the past, the past experience life experiences of other people. It's like you have to hold on for a chance to get lucky. And that usually technology like the, the constant uh, invention of new technologies will unlock an opportunity that you can't possibly see today. So yep. in 2006, you have no idea that by 2022, you know there's gonna be what billions of people paying for streaming services all over the world and that that makes the content that you're making now right or that they were making then so much more valuable the economic and the financial value to hbo has grown with time right because now they're not only would obviously plays a role in this but the amount of high quality content they have increases with time as well and that winds up they wind up picking up new subscribers in the future. And then that somebody might sign up for for HBO today to watch Fire and Blood. And then they'll go back like, hey, what like the only reason I ever paid for HBO was because of Game of Thrones, right? Mm. And every time when like they got rid of the wire or the Sopranos or whatever, I would stop using it. Right. But game I've been paying it for it ever since because of Game of Thrones. Now they have rehooked me with Fire and Blood and then you rehook me. Like there's no way they could have possibly said that hey we're going to gain a customer because he's going to be reading an email newsletter and the guy writing the newsletter is completely obsessed with the show and he walks four times you know what I mean like uh, um it's this uh somebody just told me this term where like if you're doing something over the long term actually it was Patrick from Invest Like the Best that said this his idea is like he's going to do his podcast for the, he wants to do the, his podcast for the rest of his life. And I feel the same way about Founders. I want to do my podcast for the rest of my life. And so his point is, like, if we're playing these long-term games, we can plant seeds now that don't have to reap anything for you know, two years, three years, five years. And he calls that concept over a long period of time, infinite ROI. Yeah. And so it's like, th- that only works if you're dedicated to not stopping what you're doing because you allow all the stuff you're doing to compound many decades into the future.
0: Yeah, building a body of work is increasing the surface area of luck, basically, like luck can hit you in more places because you have this huge kind of archive behind you of stuff that could yes. become, you know, timely again, or someone someone finds the right, right thing at the right place
1: and, and they make a connection to you or whatever, right? I watched Deadwood for the first time, what, 15 years after it was created, hmm. and I didn't notice that show could be made today. You know what I mean? Like if you put it on air, like, hey, we have this new thing and you just start playing these episodes, no one would be like, oh, this is in 2006. No they would be like, damn, this is really good.
0: Yeah, and, and streaming also makes these kind of non-episodic shows so much more valuable because before streaming, you miss the first couple episodes and you, you start Deadwood on the fourth episode. And a lot of people like, oh, okay, I'm too lost. There's no way I can get in, right? yeah, yeah they, 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 all these show like the golden era of hbo this first golden era with like you know sopranos and the wire and deadwood and all that rome all these shows Were so much harder to get into at the time because if you miss the beginning and you're like on the fifth episode and it's like who are all these people like there's a cast of like thirty people and they talk weird and where are they like it's so much easier now to get into that stuff so the value of the content has went up over
1: time rather than down that's great and the I mean the amount of characters in Deadwood
0: (laughs) and they keep adding more right in season three there's a whole theater troupe that comes in
1: in the last season I had forgotten they keep Adams and and Al keep fighting over Hawkeye. I'm like, who the hell's Hawkeye? <laughs> like I had forgot, you know what I mean? Like his butter. I had to go back and like, yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, and then you, he winds up popping up because he's trying to recruit soldiers in this war for Hearst or against Hearst or whatever the case is, but like, there's just so many people to keep track of him. I'm like, oh, okay, I forgot about that guy.
0: So there's a couple more teams I want to run by you and see if you what you think of them. One of them is the way violence is shown on the show in the book uh, the World bible by mad's other sites milch talks about how like he finds violence on most shows super boring doesn't interest him at all so his approach was if i'm going to show violence it's either going to be so quick like it's over so quickly that it's just shocking right or it's going to be so long and drawn out that you're like i can't take it anymore right It's it, it, too much mm-hmm. and so Once in a while, like, Dan is going to just stab someone or Adam's going to pick up someone and impale him on a a deer on the wall or something. And other times it's going to be like Dan and Captain Turner in the middle of the street and it's like, "I, I can't take this anymore. Right. That's one of the fights that has most affected me emotionally that I've seen on screen. Right.
1: It's not often you see somebody rip somebody's eye out
0: yeah, and drown them in the puddle in the middle of the yep. mud in the street and yeah. like it, it goes on forever. And these are not like, you know, Matt Damon doing a fight or something. They're just grappling and falling off a balcony and it's rolling not around choreographed. and it, yeah, no. it's like it's very messy. <laughs> when Bullock and Al fight, it's messy, but then <laughs> the healing process is messy. Like, Al is on his back for, like, episodes. episodes. The Kidney Stones, this episodes where everybody's on top of him, at the end, it's like a Renaissance painting. I
1: fast-forwarded those parts where um, Doc pulls out that long, like, steel thing. He's like, all right, now uh. I'm going to put this up your urethra. I like, I'm not watching that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, sir, there's no way I'm going to freaking watch that. <laughs> but so, your, your point,
0: though, about violence, though. Yep. So what do, you, what do you think of it? What do you think of the approach? Like did it, did it land with you? Or did you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I just think HBO is known, like it didn't stick out to me in one way or the other because how violent Game of Thrones is, how violent, like I just saw a clip where um, there's a guy named, I think his name's like Coco or something. And he like goes up into Sopranos and he approaches Tony's daughter Meadow. Right. And you know, he like kind of like lightly threatens her and like I think rubs her face, but like kind of freaks her out. And so the next part of the scene is Tony chasing that guy down in a bar. And he starts beating him almost to death. I think the guy survives with the butt of his gun. And there's a guy that's trying to, um, I forgot the character's name, who's trying to get Tony to stop. And every time Tony puts the gun in his face, he's like, you sit down. So anyways, he winds up taking the guy that was threatening his daughter and not only beating him, but then turning him over and opening his mouth and putting it on the curb or like the, the edge of the bar. Mm. And then they're like, no, don't do that. And he stomps as hard as he can on the guy's back of his head. And the whole time, he's just like Tony, you know, Tony Soprano, full of rage, this huge man gritting his teeth. He's like, my fucking daughter, my daughter. Like, just like you, like, he's spitting stuff everywhere, like complete rage. And then he puts his foot to the back of the guy's head. And then you just, all the next scene, the next thing you see is just teeth, (laughs) Uh. like all spread out on the floor. And then The Wire, and just all this stuff, like the yeah. Red Wedding, uh, the, red, the the episode of Red Wedding and Game of Thrones, which people, like, they had filmed themselves watching, and all you see is people screaming with horror what was taking place. So this was definitely less violent than oh, I yeah. think no, The it's... Sopranos, to your point, that he was doing it fast. Like, you notice that, even when they're, the, um, I think the most disturbing, or the most uh, the most graphic forms of murder are the ones done with the blades. Because the yeah. shooting, like when when uh, Bullock and, and Wild Bill, they, they shoot that guy, and they're like, you know, we're not sure who got him first. My money'd be on you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All the shooting deaths happen really, really quickly, yeah. and it was like over and less bloody. We're like, it's not romanticized, see, right? It's like bang, and it's over. But the cutting of a throat, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then like the corpse of and Woo's pigs. Yeah, and then are sending them to to Woo to be eaten, uh, have the bodies disposed of. Who was the um. The character name, that, that it was the girl that uh, Al killed that looked like Trixie. Uh, Jen. Jen? Yeah. Okay. They show they show her neck, which yeah. is in the coffin. And like then you see they kill a lot of people in the gem saloon by slicing their throat. And you see the amount of blood that is now left on the floor that then they have to clean up. But yeah, they, I, don't, I didn't consider it. They definitely didn't make it more gruesome or spend more time on it than other series I think-
0: have. One of the most disturbing violent scenes, and I'm not saying it's the worst ever, but for the show is uh, when Sai is killing the two kids that tried to rob him, right? The girl and the, the boy. Um, yeah. And he, he hit him in the head and their skull is fractured. Until so you see it from her point of view, she's seeing things kind of like all wobbly. And he's, he's like, oh, like, oh, is your skull fractured? Are you a... like, and Sai is just yeah. taunting her and, and so
1: sociopathic, for- right? And that, that was the scene. I forgot about that. That actress winds up becoming really famous after that. What was the, um? I forgot her name.
0: Yeah, she's super famous now.
1: Kristen Bell. Kristen Kristen Bell.
0: Bell, I think was one of her first kind of roles as she was uh, starting, what was it? Veronica Mars? Mars. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, no, that was something. I think think the last big theme I have for you is that the show does a great job of showing how pain rolls downhill. So a lot of the time, some character is gonna be very angry with someone who's kind of above them somehow. Like Bullock is gonna be angry at something Hearst said, but Bullock can't take it out on Hearst directly. So he's walking outside and he sees E.B. and he beats E.B., right? And E.B. is angry at something and he's going to take it out on Richardson, right? And all these characters kind of like, if they can't get at the person they're really angry at, right? So like Steve the Drunk, he's angry at Bullock, but he's going to take it out on fields and try to tar him. And this kind of like way that everybody is, sometimes you're just a bystander, right? But you could be in the crosshair just because something totally out of your control. That rings true too. In life, sometimes you're just at the wrong place at the wrong time, or you're just lower down the ladder, the, the social kind of hierarchy than someone else, and they're going to take it on you. And yeah, the show the show does a good job.
1: I think it resonated with you because that's part of human nature, unfortunately. And yeah. it's like, hurt people, hurt people, hurt people, hurt people is the way I would describe it. Exactly. And like, I experienced that with my own, you know, I've talked about this on a few podcasts. But it's just like, if you examine both sides of my family tree, and you just have people regularly abusing their family members, their kids, and it's just like, it's distasteful and yeah. to some point of like learning from books in my own thing it's like I'm searching for like mentors of people that are actually like good people or people that actually built good lives because I didn't have any of those examples growing up and one that I thought of which was really brutal and it speaks to your point where Stye Tolliver is pissed off at Hearst because Hearst is kind of, you go from, we were supposed to be equals, and now you've completely made me your subordinate. And you basically threaten me, and I think he smacked him a couple times or whatever the case is. And so he's sitting on the balcony at one of the last episodes, and he's looking at Hearst, and he has his gun out, and he's like, I'm going to get him back. And he doesn't, right? He, he's afraid to do it. So then he turns around and, without being provoked, stabs his employee, the opium addict. Yeah. I forgot his name. Leon, I think. Yeah. And then he just sits there and like watches him die. Like he just bleeds to death. And it's, that, that's a perfect example where it's like he wasn't mad at Leon. He was mad at whatever, like the, the, the emasculation or the subordination that Hearst had done to him. That uh, he thought he was powerful. And then Hearst showed him what real power was and he didn't like it. And instead of processing that like an adult or like a mature person or dealing with that, they go around, hurt people, hurt people. He turned around and he stabbed this guy and killed him and took his life for nothing.
0: Yeah. It's the same with Wolcott, right? When he goes and kills the the prostitutes, right before that, he was talking with Sai, and Cy was trying to blackmail him. And then that angered Wolcott, and he was like, uh, that's when Sai says, well, you know, I, I'm past surprise. So and then Wolcott has this great speech about like, oh, past this, past that, but past surprise, could it be possible? Like, let's make sure you're not past surprise. And then he goes kill people just to kind of get back at Sai in some way. Cause you know that Sai likes Joni, and this is Joni's place, yeah. right? And so another example of this you know, redirection of anger that's so toxic in the world, right? Cause it's, as you say, it's so true. It's so part of human nature and the world would be such a better place if people could process when they're, they're, they're angry or hurt. Rather than just take it out to someone
1: else. Violence is the fatal flaw of humanity, is the way I think about it. Because um, I've read uh, Will and Ariel Durant. I've read a lot of their writing, mm. and you know they were some of the the greatest historians. They literally try to catalog human nature and the history. They dedicated their five or I think it was a five-decade career just trying to examine like what are humans, what do we do, like what are the stories that show up, and they said like. War is just, violence is a part of nature, right? It's like, you see it, if you, if there's humans, there's gonna be violence. And they said that in all ages, men are dishonest and governments are corrupt. And as you read their work, and you see those three, unfortunately, like very dark sides of humanity, the, the corruption, the subjugation of, you know, people like using corruption as a tool to subjugate other people, dishonesty, and violence. And I remember thinking like, it's even hard to conceive and I'm definitely not a naive person. I think somebody's read as much history as I have, it's like, it'd be impossible if you'd be naive, if you're not really paying attention to what you're reading then, but just, I remember having these thoughts, like imagine a world in which humans didn't physically harm each other. Hmm. And psychologically too, yeah. Yeah, but okay. I'd much rather have psychological harm than literally you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. You get to, like, Psy stabs Leon or Bullock beats EB Pharma to the edge of death. You like, he took him multiple episodes. and not only did like he did it was definitely psychologically harmed from that beating but like you saw eb's face and like hiding in the dark and all the other stuff but like just imagine a world in which humans didn't engage in violence You just you can't (laughs) because what will and ariel durant make in their book is like there is no part of human history when humans weren't killing each other like that doesn't exist every single day that we've ever existed we have killed each other and it's to me that's why i always say on the podcast like you can't read a, a life story of somebody and not realize that humans are all me and you included, fatally flawed. Mm-hmm. Now, hopefully me and you never kill anybody, right? <laughs> I hope <Like>, so. <laughs> also. You know, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, God forbid, even a, the only thing I could ever think about doing this is like, obviously in defense of our children, like we're both fathers, right? Yeah. And um, that's why I like Cormac McCarthy's book, The Road. Oh, and I, uh, encourage, every, yeah. I that, encourage every dad to read that book specifically. And uh, obviously mothers have that, that maternal protective instinct as well. But there's a line in that book, that I quote to my daughter all the time, the two main characters in that book. It's, a, it's fundamentally, it's like, it's a, yeah, it's a post a book about post-apocalyptic society, but it's like, no, it's a relationship between a father and a son. That is the, the story. And he says towards the end, he's like, I was sent here by God to protect you. I will kill anybody that lays their, their hand on you. And I have a picture of that page underlined and I save it on my phone too. But I tell my, my daughter that, I was like, I am sent here by God to protect you. And like, my job is to like, if need be, give my life for you. But just the idea, like, I mean, I don't want to sound like, you know, crazy, which I just I fantasize about a world in which there's not
0: violence. Well, my glass half full optimist kind of guy take on this would be, it's kind of like the expectations we were talking about at first, right? Some people are like, oh, but the world should be like that, but it's terrible because it isn't. I try to look at it as it used to be so much worse everybody was living right under basically warlords, right? Almost no one had agency over their lives. Everybody was super impoverished and like dying from random infections and like war could break out at any time between tribes and regions. And so it used to be like 100% violence and this and that. And now... It's like, I don't know, like 20% or so. like, it's kind of like the Steven Pinker approach of like, well, if you actually look at the numbers, it's never been more peaceful. and it's, So it's still terrible, but at least I try to take comfort in the fact that we're kind of like to seem to be moving in the right direction, even if it doesn't always seem like this uh, in 2022.
1: It's funny that you say this, because I just finished reading Van Eever Bush's Autobiography, piece of the Action, which I referenced at the beginning of the podcast, and on the very last page, the book is on my desk, and hearing you talk, I was like, oh, I just read this like two or three days ago. Hmm. And on the very last page, he wraps up the book, and he goes, listen, when I get downcast, this is an 80-year-old genius. That is, these are the words of an 80-year-old genius, and I think there's some wisdom in them. He goes, when I get downcast, I read history. We may yet be crude, but we have come so far. That's exactly the same idea that you just expressed there. That's wise. That's so wise.
0: Like, it's the same thing with like, when people talk about how like, oh, but inequality and these people are so rich and they're so poor, it's true. Like this could be much better. But before everybody was poor and that wasn't good either, right? It's not like we came from a world where everybody was rich and now these bad people made some people poor and some people rich. It's like, no, everybody was poor, right? So we should still always strive to improve. It's like, there's no destination where you, where we, we're going to be like, okay, this is enough or we can't do better. I think we can do much, much, much better than what we're doing now when it comes to things like, you know, violence and, and opportunity and all that. But yeah, if I could press a button and be reincarnated as someone like 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 5,000, like I don't think I could pick a date where I would press the button. I'd rather be alive today.
1: 100%.
0: We are unbelievable. Like if it was random, right? Some people look at the king of France, and oh, if I could, no, no, if you could be a random person then, and even the king of France didn't have
1: antibiotics in the microwave and DVDs and like, so. The internet. Yeah. Like how me and you are talking right now. No, 100%. Like this is the best time in history to be alive is right now. Like, yeah. that's undeniable. I would not go back and be the king of France a thousand years ago. You know, that guy shitting in a bucket. Like, no, thank you. I have indoor plumbing. I have AC. Most importantly, I have the internet. Like, or penicillin, or just like, look at all, like, no way. Yeah. No way. This is the best time. Like, again, when people say stuff like that, like, I just don't think they've read enough history or studied enough history to ever, like, I look at history as something to learn from. It's not something to go back to.
0: Listen, maybe that could speak talked with you all day and we could probably do three or four (laughs) other podcasts on other topics but i'm gonna have to let you go um anytime you want man anything else you want to add at the end or any last thoughts about deadwood or any anything we haven't touched or what did your wife think of it anything else i'm curious she
1: she loved it and she like i think that the fact that it didn't like go too difficult on the the violence to your point and in many cases you saw the violence after the fact like when um they tried it they broke the strike and then they put the guy's dead body in the middle of the town and mm. all you saw was a um a knife to his chest but yeah i was surprised but again it's the dialogue it's the characters it's al it's like uh. all, all the characters are great but i'm telling you it, like i would just watch it just for al and now i know i'm going to wind up re in the future and like i want to see it now that i knew again when you meet him i'm like why is this guy fighting with this other guy and like they're setting up a tent to sell hardware and they're, they're trying to do a negotiation with them and this al guy is a hard ass you gotta be careful how you talk to him. Cause he's, we've already seen him kill a bunch of people. He'd try to kill a little kid, like all that crazy things. But then you understand, like, I did not understand who he was as a person or like, it's just the same thing when I reread books, you know, like yeah. you don't get it. You change, like, they're not going to change what happens in the show, but we change as people and our yeah. understanding changes. Exactly. When you rewatch Deadwood for
0: the second time, I think it's probably the more, more crucial time because like, especially like the first, like five episodes or something, it's like, you know, also so differently, right? And then everything reads differently when you, you see it for the second time. So, so we, we'll have to talk about when, when you have a chance to rewatch yeah, it. We'll do I'm that. gonna put in the show notes some stuff, like I have more material for you. There's a podcast about Deadwood that I love the two hosts are great friends. They're having a great time. So it's fun to listen to. And they do impressions. They're great at doing Al and Sai and every character. They basically watch the show together with subtitles on mute and uh-huh. they talk about it scene by scene and do impressions. And so I listen to this in the evening before going to bed, like 10, 10, 15 minutes. Always puts me in a good mood. I'm going to put that in show notes for the listeners. Uh, there's a 25 minute video essay by Matt Zolosites, the guy who made the Deadwood Bible. Like five, 10 years ago, he did this video essay about Deadwood, about some of the themes, some of the scene, some of the writing. It's narrated by Jim Beaver, who does Ellsworth. It's, it's a great little essay. I'm going to put that in the show notes. Uh, I'm going to put links to all the books, everything. So if you or, or anyone listening wants to check it out, wants to go deeper in Deadwood, but I feel like this is the show I'm going to spend like the rest of my life trying to convert as many people to at least give it a try, right? At least three episodes. And then it's not for everybody. If it's not for you, it's fine.
1: But the people that it's for, it's really for, because nothing else is like it. They, it grabs them. So I told you, I told a few friends about it. And one in particular, he starts watching, he got way ahead of me. Obviously I've been like busy recently, everything's going on in my life in like, the last like, two months, but he got way ahead of me and he finished it. And then uh, he loved it so much. So, now, so you tell everybody, you tell me, I tell him. And so I also bought him a, for his birthday, his birthday was in September. I bought him the Deadwood Bible at your recommendation too. Oh, nice. He's gonna love it. Yeah. It's a great book. <laughs> He sent me a message the other day because he got hit by that hurricane. Um, he was in Central Florida, and he was without power for a few days. He's like, I'm reading my Deadwood Bible in the conditions of Deadwood by candlelight with no electricity.
0: <laughs> oh, man. That's, that's
1: He's good. got his power back, though, so that's good. <laughs> but Liberty, thank you as always for inviting me, man. I'm happy to do a podcast with you anytime you want.
0: That's a perfect note to end it reading the deadwood bible in the conditions of deadwood i can't do a better <laughs> sentence of that it's almost a david milch image so uh, man thank you so much for doing this thank you for for giving it a try right you say you don't watch that many shows so thank you for I don't. for taking a flyer on it i'm i'm glad you and your wife liked it thank you so much yeah have a good I'll day talk to you soon bye bye